Okay, uh, 2 Corinthians 7, if you have a Bible, we're going to go there. And as you turn to chapter 7, I'll pray for us, and then we're going to dive in. Uh, so let's pray. Father, thanks again for, for the time you've given us to be together. And we, we're thankful, Lord, that you've um, brought us here to, to be people of your word and to center ourselves around it. And Lord, I just want to ask you to help us today as we walk through this text, as we walk through the, the points that you inspired the Apostle Paul to, to say and to write, uh, that, you have, that your words are in these words, and we hope we would hear them today. And so, God, we just pray for that, and I just ask you to help me uh, to articulate clearly what you have to say through it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, so here at Springbrook Church, we have, we have a saying that, that we use a lot, or I do at least. It's that gospel doctrine leads to gospel culture. You're probably sick of me saying that by now, um, but, but we really do believe that this is the way <coughs> to live within the church, that what we believe— about the scriptures and about Jesus and about uh, all that we say we believe as Christians, those things that we say we believe should actually lead us to live in a way as if those things are true. I know that's a novel concept. And unfortunately, it's not true in a lot of, a lot of places that you've probably been a part of and that I've been a part of um, because this is an, this is an ever um, vital thing that we as people commit ourselves to be about, to not just believe certain things intellectually with our minds, but to actually live them out as if they're true. And, and so what we believe about Jesus and what he's done for us should lead us to the way we live with one another. And so today we're going to see an, an interesting doctrine, one that doesn't get a lot of, a lot of attention actually, uh, in uh, in church or in the, even in the Bible, there's not a ton about this, but it's it's there, and in the parts that are dealing with it are really wonderful. Um, not a lot of people write books on this issue. Not a lot of people preach sermons on this issue, um, but it's an important one. And one of, one of the reasons why I love teaching through books of the Bible is that it gets us to things that we would not normally talk about. Um, because it's there. We just got to deal with it. Like, I can't just go from chapter 6 to chapter 8 if I don't like it, right? Or whatever other examples we could give. You just got to keep talking about what the Bible talks about. And today, nothing controversial, nothing really, really crazy, um, but just something that I think has been neglected in the church. Um, and in, in maybe not in this church as much as, as uh, others, but, but certainly something that we constantly need to bring ourselves back to. And here's the doctrine that I'm talking about. Um, this doctrine that Jesus is a friend of sinners. That Jesus actually befriends people that many of us would look at and go, nope, I don't, I don't want to be in relationship with them. We, we obviously love that doctrine when we understand ourselves as sinners that Jesus loves and wants to befriend. We don't love this doctrine when it's actually called on us to do the same. And that's, that's what we got to look at today. When, when we start to see this chapter, what we're seeing is Paul really befriend these, these people in Corinth. And, and his, his friendship with them becomes so important to him. 
He wants to restore it. He, that's what he's really been doing this whole time. This whole letter has been trying to restore a relationship that has been fractured and broken, mostly one-sided, right? That the Corinthian church was like, no, we don't like Paul. We don't want Paul. And Paul's kind of going to them and saying, no, 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 please. Like, I, I want to befriend you. Let's see some of this. Let's see some of this going both ways. Um, but, but I think all of this ultimately flows out of this doctrine that Jesus befriends sinners. And, and there's a lot of examples of that. We could look at the, probably the most famous one is where Jesus befriends a guy named Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus, we're told in the scriptures, I think this was in Luke uh, 18 uh, or 19. I'm, I'm, I lost it there, but it's one of those right in that range. Um, and Zacchaeus is this guy who's just an awful dude, like awful. Everybody hates him because he's a tax collector. And of course, you don't like those people anyways. But then on top of that, he was taking more from people than what he even had to take in order to pad his own pockets. So he was a thief on top of it. And, um, and so understandably, nobody liked Zacchaeus. Then Jesus shows up and actually looks at Zacchaeus and goes, you know what, Zacchaeus, I want to have dinner with you. I want to hang out with you. I want to befriend you. And everybody's shocked and appalled at Jesus for doing this. But what that does is it creates a change in Zacchaeus' life. And that story is just, it's an important one, right? We love that. We love it when when we can put ourselves in the place of Zacchaeus and go, okay, Jesus loved me when I was a sinner. Wonderful. But, But what about us with others? Are we befriending people who are difficult to love? Are we befriending people who are difficult to befriend? And, and so I think we notice as we read chapter 7 is there's a, there's a shift in Paul's tone. Um, most of the first six chapters have been really kind of um, hard on, on the Corinthians, have been pretty tough. He's been speaking hard truths to their lives. Uh, he's trying to win them back to Christ um, and to himself as well. But here, like the tone changes so much and it, it's like Paul's actually sounding kind of happy in this, in this chapter, which he doesn't sound in most of the chapters before this. Um, so, so here he's, he's seeing this, um, we're seeing this change in Paul's tone. And what we're going to look at as we walk through this text is that Paul's joy that he's, that he's expressing here actually flows out of friendship for the Corinthians, but it's all because of Christ that, that his friendship for the Corinthians is there. Um, we're we're going to see that he, he makes like four different points that, that teach us something about gospel-centered, Jesus-centered friendships in this passage. And each of them points us back to something that is true of Christ. So what Paul's doing is he's talking about himself and the Corinthians and their relationships and their dynamics, but the things that Paul's bringing out are flowing out of Jesus and who Jesus is. And that's how it has to be, right? Our friendship with Jesus is what leads us ultimately to true and joyful friendship with each other. But here's what's incredible to me. When I, when I look at the whole picture of Paul and the Corinthians, we have two of the letters he wrote And he actually wrote more to the Corinthians in terms of the number of verses and and words than any other church in the the entire New Testament. 
First Corinthians is the longest book by, by words uh, in the whole New Testament. And then you've got 2 Corinthians, which is not a short letter either. So Paul spends vastly more time talking to these people, writing to them, communicating. And this is actually only two of at least three or possibly four letters that we know of that he wrote to this church. And he probably wrote many more than that. He loved these people, but it's incredible that he did because they were total jerks to him. Like they really were. They were so awful to him. And, and yet he doesn't walk away. He doesn't write them off. He doesn't say, well, you guys, you guys just stink. I'm, I'm out. You know, he doesn't do that. No, he continues to embrace them as his friends. And he spent three, uh, well, about um, a year and a half, rather, with, in person with the Corinthians that we know of. He was with them face to face. They didn't always want to embrace him, but he never wanted to walk away from them. And so there's a lot to learn here. There's a lot to learn about Christ. Most, of, most importantly, I, wanna, I want you to see Jesus in this. I want you to see how Jesus befriends you in this, but I also want us to see how Jesus and his friendship towards us leads us into friendship with others, especially people who are hard to, to love. And so here we go. We're going to walk through it. The, the main premise for today, as I've already kind of stated, but I'll, I'll put it out in front of us, is that Christian friendship, which is a huge theme in this passage, Christian friendship flows from the friendship Christ has with you and me. All right, so let's look at verse 2. We, we ended last week at verse 1. So picking up in verse 2, um, we're going to look at um, the first two points are just in this first verse. Uh, but we're going to look at two things that friendship is in light of Christ. All right, so let's read the first sentence. It says, make room in your hearts for us. All right. So Paul has already said this to them back at the midpoint or so of chapter 6, just a little bit ago. He says, we have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. He's like, listen, the, the issue here is not us, it's you. That's what he's saying to them. We, we really care about you. You do not care about us because you've got some problems in your heart. And so in verse 13, he says, in return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. Open up your hearts. He's already said that. Now he, he repeats it. He doubles down on it. And he says, make room in your hearts for us. So what does this tell us just right out of the gate about friendship in Christ? It tells us this, that friendship is a welcoming thing because Jesus welcomed us. Friendship starts with being open to having other people into your life. Um, I, I've gleaned a lot from a guy named C.S. Lewis. You guys know, you guys know this. I, I love C.S. Lewis. Okay, I'm a fanboy. I'm not going to apologize. But he, he wrote this book, doesn't get a lot of attention. Like his main book, you know, Narnia, of course, he's really famous for that, of course. But then he wrote Mere Christianity, super, super famous book. Um, but he wrote this book that's maybe less known. It's called uh, The Four Loves. And what he does is he kind of walks through the four Greek words that 
are translated love in English. And, uh, and he just unpacks what they mean. And so there's actually a word that the ancient Greeks used specifically to talk about friendship. Um, and we would just translate it love in a, in a literal sense, but, but it's, a, it's a different kind of care. It's a different kind of love. It's a, it's a friendship. And so he writes probably more than most people have written on this subject. And uh, I, I just really like how he, uh, how he defines friendship as a, as a welcoming thing. First, he says that friendship is the least jealous of all the loves. It's not jealous. Like your marriage, you should be jealous of your spouse. You would be really dysfunctional if you weren't. Like, right? That's why you make vows, commit things to each other. Like, really, really bad marriages are the result, at least in some cases, because the one person doesn't care about the other as a as their spouse, right? So we get that. There's some, there's some jealousy there. That, and it's not bad jealousy. It's healthy in its proper context. Of course, it can be totally taken to an extreme, but in a, in a healthy way, there should be some level of jealousy there. Uh, even in family love, uh, you know, with, with parents and children or brothers and sisters, uh, in, a, in a family sense, there's some jealousy. That's why you always have problems this time of year with your in-laws, right? Um, because you can't decide who's going to have you over for, like, which family are we going to go to, right? There's, some, there's jealousy there. Mother-in-laws are jealous. And, and so, so that's how it works. Um, but friendship, Lewis says, is not that way. He says that two friends are always happy to have a third. And three are happy to have a fourth. As, as long as, you know, there's a common understanding of what's happening. And, and so here's a little quote from him uh, I thought was helpful. He says, In a circle of true friends, each person is simply what he is. No one cares about anyone else's family, profession, class, income, race, or previous history. Of course, you get to know mo- about most of those things in the end, but casually, and they only come out bit by bit to furnish some illustration or an analogy or to serve as a peg to a story, but never for their own sake. That's the kingliness of friendship. In other words, what he's saying is, it's like friends just embrace each other and it doesn't matter where you're from or who you are or how rich you are. Like that's not the basis of friendship. In fact, you only really learn those things about each other, he says, little by little as somebody tells stories about their lives. And and like nobody sits down with their friend and go, tell me everything about you. Like, that's weird, right? You don't do that. You just, you learn things about each other as time goes on. And, and so Lewis is like, hey, friendship is welcoming. It's embracing. It's, it's accepting of people uh, as long as there's some common level of interest on that front, right? That, that initial like, hey, we get along here. I think friendship is probably the hardest thing to like draw lines on and say, this is clearly where friendship is and isn't. It, it's a, little bit more, uh, it, it, it's a little bit more fluid of a relationship than others. But, it, but it's, a, it's a welcoming relationship. But here's what I want to get at. Paul's call to the Corinthians to make room in their hearts for him, is he's essentially saying, please welcome us into friendship. But why does he go there? Well, the reason he goes there is because Jesus welcomes us. In fact, we see in uh, Romans chapter uh, 15, verse 7, I don't even need to turn there. He says, he says, we should welcome each other, welcome one another, 
as Christ has welcomed you to the glory of God. Paul tells the church in Rome that we should be a welcoming place for all kinds of people because Jesus is a welcoming God and he's a welcoming savior and he brings people in to friendship with him. And that, that's why, I mean, we, we can get lost in the weeds here, but just look at the guys that Jesus chose to be his friends and helpers and serve with him as his apostles. Those guys were like just absolute the worst group of guys you could ever imagine bringing together. They weren't super intelligent. They didn't have any like impressive resumes. They were just guys who were dropouts of school. And Jesus was like, you know what? Come on. Now that should really encourage you. It encourages me because Jesus doesn't have some metric for us to, to meet or measure up to before he says, you know what? I, I want you on, on, my, on my side here. I want you with me. He just welcomes anyone to himself. And so we should be welcoming. We should open our hearts, right? That's the implication. All right, let's keep going. Look, look at verse two again here. We're, we're in the second sentence now. He says, we have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. All right, so Paul's kind of defending himself a little bit here, right? Because he wants them to be sure and understand, like, we haven't done anything to you to fracture this relationship. There are definitely situations where people in your life have done things that have fractured a relationship and there takes a lot of time to heal those things. No doubt. We live in a broken world. We have all kinds of problems. Um, no, no one's parents were perfect. They did, did wrong by us at times. Yes, all of that's true. All of it. However, in Christ, as Christ becomes real and important to us, those relationships can begin to heal and be repaired by the gospel and through, through Christ's love, uh, these things can begin to, to be healed. But Paul's telling the Corinthians, I didn't have any of this to heal initially. We haven't done anything to you to, to break this relationship down. And he says he's, he, they're, they're really guilt-free of three things. He has not wronged anyone. He hasn't corrupted anyone. And he hasn't taken advantage of anyone. And so here's, here's how uh, we can understand what he's saying. When he says that we have wronged no one, what, what that word in Greek gets back to is this idea of, of being harsh, like being overly um, just, just throwing, throwing you know, harm on people, right? To, harm, to wrong someone is to hurt them, to harm them, uh, and to be really harsh with them. Now, Paul was honest with them, and we're going to see that later on in this chapter, but, but he didn't do it in a way that was wronging them. He was, he was handling the situation to the best of his ability, and he was not overly harsh. You guys know, maybe you've had friends in your life that are really harsh, and you're like, ah, I don't know if I want to be friends with you anymore, right? Like that, it does make you kind of question whether you want to be in friendship with them. But here's the good news. Jesus will never, as our friend, be overly harsh with us. He will tell us the truth, he will lead us to, to what we need to, to change, but he will never do it in a way that's overly cruel. He, he's 
he actually, Jesus actually defines himself. He defines himself as gentle. That's how he, that's how he attributes, that's his primary character trait that he gives to talk about his heart. He is gentle and lowly in heart, he says in Matthew 11. And so we see that Jesus is, as a friend, not a harsh, cruel, wronging friend, but a gentle friend. And doesn't, again, I don't mean that to say that we never say hard things. We do. We need to at times. And we're going to see that. It's not in conflict. But it's the way in which we say what needs to be said that matters. Then Paul says we have corrupted no one. And this, this has to do with um, misleading, misleading, uh, being manipulative, saying things that just aren't true. And, and again, like in imperfect human friendships, we're going to have situations where that's, that happens, where we mislead our friends or they mislead us. But, in, but as we look at the relationship that Jesus calls us to, Uh, in the friendship that he has with us and that friendship flowing out to others, we should not be uh, misleading people. We should be speaking truthfully, uh, gently but truthfully to people, right? And so the question is, are are we being honest about the things that need to be said or are we misleading people to satisfy their, you know, their feelings? I think we need to, we need to walk that line and it's a hard line to walk. But, but again, Jesus says that he's gentle. He also tells us that he's the truth. In John 14, he says that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by him. And so Jesus is truth. He's not going to tell us things that aren't right. And that's what friends do. And then third third thing here is that we've taken advantage of no one. Um, Friendship uh, doesn't use people. It loves people, right? And, and so you got to look at your friendships and go, am I being used or am I using others or am I loving these friends that I have? See, Jesus never took advantage of us. In fact, he laid aside every right he had to, to the throne in heaven. He laid it aside, Philippians 2 tells us, and he humbled himself by becoming obedient, even to the point of death, death on a cross. Jesus laid heaven aside to save us. He didn't, he didn't use us to get to his agenda. He laid aside his agenda for our sake. And as, as we pursue friendships with people, we've got to recognize that that's, that flows out of the heart of Christ, that we should not be using people. We should not be trying to get from people. Uh, we should not be just going for, towards somebody because of what they can do for us. Like Ray and I are not friends because he can fix my car. Although he can and has, <laughs> and I hope will continue to, but that's, not, but that's not why, right? And that would be a really shallow friendship if it was just like, all right, I'm only going to talk to you because I have something for you to do for me. That's not, that's not right. And so Paul's saying, I I'm not treating you harshly. I'm not treating you in a misleading way. I'm not, I'm not using you to get to something else because that, that's not what Christ does for us. All right, let, so those are the first two things. The first, first is that friendship is welcoming because Jesus welcomes us. The second is friendship is, actually, I didn't even say this, but it's built on integrity because Jesus lived 
a life of integrity. So, so, Jesus, so Paul's talking about his integrity towards the Corinthians. And that was the main point there. So um, friendship is built on a int- uh, life of integrity. Thirdly, um, we're going to look at verse 3 through 7. So a little bit more of a chunk here. We're going to get more than just a verse at a time here. Let's look at it. He says, I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts listen to this, to die together and to live together. You see Paul's heart for these people? He's not wanting to write them off. He's not wanting to just throw them aside. He wants to die with them and live with them. He's like, we're in this thing through thick and thin. Verse four, I'm acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I'm filled with comfort in all of our afflictions, I am overflowing with joy. So here the, the tone has completely changed, right? He's not talking about all of his hardships right now. He's acknowledging them, but he's saying that even in all of our afflictions, I'm overflowing with joy. And this is why. Look at verse 5 through 7. Here's where this joy is stemming from. It says, For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. But we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. So, so Paul's talking about his, he, he's mentioned this in chapter one. Chapter one, he lays out all these horrible things that happened to him in Macedonia and, and further on in Asia as he kept going. Um, Paul basically, I think the, the timeline here is he spent some time in Corinth. He goes through Macedonia um, or he ultimately lands in Macedonia and he goes through Asia, through Ephesus to get there. And and in Ephesus, he had all these horrible things happen to him too. He just has bad things after bad things. He defines them as fighting without, so all all this conflict outside of himself, and fear within. So he's he's acknowledging he's afraid, that he's struggling, that he's got all these things. But then look at verse 6. It says, but God who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. Notice what he says. This is huge. He's saying he's got all these, these conflicts externally and internally. He's really struggling with, with depression here. I, I don't think there's any question that Paul was depressed. Um, in the, whatever clinical way you want to talk about that, there was, no, there was no clinical understanding of this in Paul's day. But I think it's safe to assume Paul was depressed and he struggled emotionally really greatly here. And, and so he says here that God who comforts the downcast, and there is another way to, to, to translate that as depressed. You can, some translations do. That God comforts the downcast, but then notice this, that he comforted us by the coming of Titus. So notice what Paul does. He, he says God is the ultimate source of comfort, but how does God comfort Paul in this situation by sending Titus by sending Paul his friend Um, friendship is a source of comfort from Jesus all comfort comes from God 
in Christ. But it, but it comes through various means, right? Ways that God gets to us. Um, and, and I think there's a wide range of things that God can do to comfort people in different situations. But one of the primary ways that he does it is through friendship. He comforted Paul by sending Titus to Macedonia. And Titus's friendship with Paul helped to, to heal what was wrong in him. That's huge. I, th- I don't think that we give enough credit to our friends for how God uses them in our lives. I don't think we do. I don't think we recognize, as we should, the way God uses people to bring us comfort in Christ. And I'm not saying we need to have an unhealthy, like, codependency with our friends, right? There can, this can, again, this can be taken to an extreme it shouldn't be. We, we shouldn't have to be dependent on people to find a source of joy. But, but joy does come by God through our friendships. There's no question there. And, and ultimately, as I've been trying to point out in all of this, this all goes back to who Jesus is himself, that Jesus is our greatest comfort because uh, he, he has sent to us the comforter. In John, in John we, we read about how the Holy Spirit will come and has come now from our point of view, from our, from our place in history. But at that time, he's talking about a future time when the Holy Spirit would come upon his people. And he defines the, the Holy Spirit as our comforter. And he says, listen, you're not going to have me. We're not going to have Jesus physically on the earth forever, right? He'll come back and one day he will be with us physically forever. But right now we're in this in-between time where we can't just like fly over to Israel and visit Jesus in his house. Don't have that privilege. But we have something better, Jesus says. We have the Holy Spirit. The very Spirit of Christ resides within those who love and worship Jesus. And because that's a little bit not tangible sometimes, God also gives us the tangible friendships that are centered around Christ that, that help us and bring comfort to us. I don't, I don't think we can overstate the importance of this. And I bet if you think through your own life, you can probably think about ways in which God has done this for you and has brought friends to you at the right time. And, and that's, that's a blessing. That's a, that's a gift from him. So Paul says here, we have this source of comfort in God himself. He doesn't, he doesn't say that Titus is his comfort. God is his comfort. But God used Titus in this situation to bring uh, Paul that comfort he needed in this moment. But we also know that, that there, were, there was a point in time where Paul didn't get this. In fact, in 2 Timothy, I know I've referenced this in, in previous sermons, but um, Paul talks about uh, a time when he was actually at the very end of his life. 2 Timothy was the last letter he wrote. He was in prison, getting ready to be beheaded by, by the Romans. And, and he was going to court to try to plead his case and try to stay his execution. And, and here's what he says in verse 16. He says, at my first defense, that is his first court appearance, he says, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. 
All of his friends left him at this point in time. He says, but then look at his heart. May it not be charged against them. (laughs) I don't think I would feel that way. But that's where Paul's more sanctified than me. And then it says this, look at verse 17. He says, but, so even though everybody's left, everyone's abandoned him, deserted him, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So, so again, there are different things here, right? Jesus is our comfort. The Lord stands by us. And there are, but there are seasons where he sends people into our lives to bring us that comfort as well. Okay, one more here. Um, look at verse 8 through the end of the chapter. So another good chunk here, but let's, we'll read it and then we'll step back and talk. It says, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what earnestness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness might, uh, for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has refreshed, has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boast I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. All right, so there's a lot going on there, um, but let's just unpack a little bit here. I think the overall point that Paul's making here is this, that friends help each other repent. Friends help each other repent. Isn't that what Paul's saying? He says in verse 8, he says, I, even if I made you grieve with my letter. Now, he's not talking about this letter, and he's not talking about 1 Corinthians. He's talking about the, the letter we don't have in our Bibles, the letter that kind of sparked the reason why he wrote this letter, because he wrote a letter to them. They freaked out, and Paul was trying to help fix this thing. And so he wrote this letter because Titus came back and told him what needed to be said, and that's where all this is coming from. So he writes this letter, and he says that he grieved them. And he says, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. Right? It's, he's, he's talking out of both sides of his mouth in some way because he's, he's conflicted. On one hand, he's not sad that he, that he made them sad because their sadness led to their repentance. The fact that they were grieved by what Paul was pointing out, and we don't even know what it was. Like, he doesn't even go into detail about it. We know that there was someone here in this text, we know someone did something wrong, somebody suffered because of that wrong, but we have no idea what, what it was. It's not important. It's vague, I think, on purpose. 
because we all get this, right? Somebody does something to someone else. That's not cool. And, and you can be anything. It could be anything, right? So here Paul, as their friend, writes them this letter prior to this one and grieves them. But the grief that they felt, he says, led them to repentance, to a change of heart, to, to turning back to Christ. And, and so here's, here's a key thing, and we kind of mentioned this uh, uh, on the front end of this, but being a source of comfort to our friends does not mean that we don't say what needs to be said. Paul, Paul said what needed to be said, and he knew it was going to hurt them. He knew that it was going to make them uncomfortable. He knew that it was going to make them sorrowful, but he wanted to be a faithful friend. And this goes back to what Solomon writes in Proverbs, which he says, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. So many enemies are just going to tell you what you want to hear, but faithful are the wounds of a friend. A friend may hurt you, but it's because they love you and they want you to repent and grow, right? We need people in our lives to speak truth into our hearts because our hearts can be deceived and we don't always have a good handle on it. In fact, we all have blind spots and the thing about a blind spot is you can't see it. You don't even know you have a blind spot because you can't see it. And so you need friends to come alongside you and go, hey, have you thought about this? I'm seeing this. I'm not trying to offend you or hurt you or, or anything, but I just want you to, to see what I'm seeing here. And, and let me just tell you something. Not a single one of your friends is going to thank you for that. Not at first. Not one of them is going to go, you know what? I needed to hear that. Thanks. No, they're going to be ticked at you. You got to just accept that. But eventually, if the Lord's working in their life, it, their tune will change. It'll change. They won't like it in the moment. And a lot of that, the reception to it will, will be impacted by how it's delivered. I do want to stress that because it can be delivered horribly and that doesn't do you any favors. But even if it's delivered in the most gentle way, nobody wants to have their sin pointed out to them, right? We, we always talk, or, or one of the Paul Tripp statements that I really like is that when, when there's someone else sinning, we're really good judges. And when we're sinning, we're really good lawyers, that's what we do. We're just good at that. We're good at defending ourselves. We, we got to get that. We, okay, but listen, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't have this conviction and desire to see people grow in Christ. In fact, the, the Bible says an amazing thing in Romans chapter 4. It says something that I just, I'm always just blown, my head is blown by it. It's like, it says that it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Jesus' kindness is what leads you to, to come back to him. Can you believe that? It's not, it's not Jesus' harshness or rudeness or, or you know, punching you in the face that gets you to, to repent. It's his kindness that gets you to repent. Because he's a friend who, who will nudge you in the right direction and will and will point out what needs to be said and of course he knows every one of you personally so some of you are denser than others and so maybe maybe the message has to be harsher for some of you than others right i know that's true for me and so i i get that there's a everybody's got a different like pain tolerance too right so what what one person may receive from jesus's kindness might seem like something would that would absolutely crush you and, and it would, but Jesus knows you, and so he doesn't use that tactic on you. 
So Jesus is a very, very smart Savior, and he knows what he's doing. And so it's the kindness of God uh, through his friendship with us that gently points out our sin, and he uses human friendships to do this so that we can be brought to the throne of grace. And I think this is what Paul's, he's concluding this chapter with this desire to see the Corinthians continue to press in more and more into this, into this repentance. Um, I've been reading some, some interesting books lately. Um, one of them is from 1651. <laughs> it's horrible to read. Uh, it's, just, it's just so painful because the, the English is so, so old. Um, it takes me like 30 times to read a, a paragraph to understand it. Um, but it's a, it's a book called The Heart of Christ in Heaven Towards Sinners on Earth. The Puritans weren't very good at consolidating their titles. Um, but that's the title of it. And, and there was just something that this guy named Thomas Goodwin, who wrote this book from 1651, uh, said that just was really impactful to me. And it points out the heart of Christ. It, 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 it points out who Christ is. Um, and so e- even if you don't have a friend, I'm going to read the quote, but even if you don't have a friend in your life who will tell you the truth and help you to repent, you have a great high priest in heaven who is your friend in Christ who will do that for you. And so I'm going to read a little paraphrase. It's paraphrased because I, I just know if I read it verbatim, <laughs> I'd have to read it 30 times for all of us to soak that in. It's just ridiculous. So I've kind of condensed it down. But here's what it says. It says, um, he, he's being very pastoral in this point, point of the book. And he says, okay, someone, some distressed person, some concerned person is going to come to me and ask this question. And here's the question. I know that Jesus pities me. I know he feels bad for me. I know that my misery and my sin is great, but will he actually take all of my sin, as awful as it is, as huge as it is, and bring it to his heart? And will he forgive me and show me kindness in in the greatest of my sins? That's the question. Will Jesus actually take you as you are with all your junk? Okay, that's, that's... the 2020 paraphrase of 1651. Um, and, and here's what he says. It's just one little sentence, and this one's, I didn't have to paraphrase it at all. It's super simple. Your misery, and by that he means your sin and your suffering and all, your, all the hardships, your misery can never exceed his mercy. I read that, and then I had to back up and read the whole paragraph several times to understand like, wow, that's incredible. Our misery will never exceed his mercy. Your sins and my sins cannot be greater than his grace to you. He, he wants you to feel the weight of your sin, but he doesn't want you to bear the weight of your sin. He wants you to let it go and give it to him at the cross. He wants you to hand your sin over to your great friend, Jesus, who loves you and is here for you to, to take all of your brokenness and bring you healing. This is what Paul is trying to do for the Corinthians. He's, he's being a good friend to them by telling them what they need to hear. But the, the intention isn't to hurt them. It's to help bring them to Jesus. And so maybe you don't have a friend in your life who's going to do that to you. Let me be that friend for you right now. 
then let me just tell you, you can bring all of your junk to Jesus and he will take it upon himself and he will forgive it because he died for it on the cross 2,000 years ago. That's the hope you have. That's where your joy can come from today. You need to hear it, but you've got to let go of the sin. You've got to repent. You've got to turn. You've got to change your heart back to Christ. And we've got to do that as we lean into him and come to him for help. He's ready for us. He's waiting for us. Are we going to come to him? That's the question today. All right, let me pray for us. Then we'll, then we'll move, move on to our next part of the service. Jesus, we are so thankful that you are the friend we need. Uh, that, you, that you have done everything to embrace us, that you have lived the perfect life of integrity for us, that you have been our comfort to us, and that you've given us the gifts of friends here on earth to be comforts to us as well. And Lord, we're thankful that you lead us to repentance. Would you do that work in our hearts even now? Uh, you know every person in this room. You know every single thing that's going on. And, and I just know you are strong enough to take us and change us and help us. We pray for that, Lord, and we pray you would use the rest of our time to get us there. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.